Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios, Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and joining me today, the man, the myth, the legend, the man with the plan, Dan from Radio Free Borderlands. Be overhyped. Ah, you're never overhyped. I enjoy, I always enjoy having you on the show, so. But, you know, Dan and I, we have been friends for a very long time. As a matter of fact, Dan and I have been friends for so long, I can't even count anymore because if I try to count the years we've been friends, I run out of fingers and toes. So, And you get depressed. What's that? And you'd get depressed. Yeah. <laughs> and so if there's one thing I know about Dan, it's he's a big fan of Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing games. But since I've known him for so long, if there's two things I know about Dan, it would be that he's just as passionate about music as he is about D&D and role-playing games. So I'm going to deviate a little bit from our normal topics of you know, Dungeons and Dragons, comics, video games, stuff like that, that we usually talk about on the show, and talk a little bit about music. And I know we've actually talked about music before. Many, 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 oh, geez, how many episodes ago was that? We actually did an episode just on heavy metal. I don't remember, which probably tells you how long ago. To be fair, I don't remember half of what I did today. (laughs) <laughs> been having one of those types of days, huh? Weeks, months. Yeah. Yep. And actually, okay, we'll go with that. Yeah, actually, just going back and looking at uh, my list of episodes, that's a good question. When, when did we? Uh, episode 25. That's when we did our metal episode where we talked just about heavy metal. And well, that sounds like it was a long time ago. It was quite a long time ago. <laughs> And, a long, long time ago. What? A long, long time ago. You put out an echo effect just to just to mess with me, didn't you? Well, you have to sell the long, long time ago. Yes, you do. That I will give you points for creativity. That that was that was actually pretty cool. Hey, just a turn of a couple of knobs. <laughs> Giggity. <laughs> knobs. And just a quick announcement before we dive into today's topic of discussion. Welcome to Bone Thrower's Theater. Nah, it's not that kind of show. It's an RPG actual play podcast. My name is Jordan, and I'm joined by our fun-loving cast. This is Aaron. Jeff here. Johnny is my name. And I'm Jeremy. And what we do is dive in and play various tabletop RPG systems and games, such as Mini 6, Fiasco, Inspectors, Monster of the Week, Fate, and more. But no matter the rule set or setting, some pretty intense storytelling hits the fan. So whether you like epic fantasy, adventure, comedy, sci-fi, horror, or just horrifically bad puns, we've got something to feast your imagination on. Listen to our full episodes and more at BoneThrowersTheater.com. And may the bones fall ever in your favor. So the thing we're going to talk about is we're going to be talking about music and musicians and bands and how they sometimes change over time. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, uh, because let's say that you were to rate the albums 
of a band that you like on a scale of one to five, where mm-hmm. one is, it's okay, but I'm not going to go out of my way to listen to it. What if they have six records? Well, this is where just writing all their albums <laughs> on them. Yeah, okay, you're, don't, get, don't get smart. Stay the way you are. I know. <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> well, anyways. So, okay, so one is you're not going to go out of your way to listen to it, but you don't hate it. Five is, oh, my God, I could listen to this album all day and still love it. And then two to four is somewhere in between. So, you know, albums that you enjoy, maybe on like a two or three, maybe you're not taking them out every day, but you enjoy listening to them. And maybe a, a, a four, it's an album that you listen to quite frequently. So one of the things I've found, and I don't know if it's just me or just the way the bands change, I find there's very few bands I listen to where they stay at a consistent level. I personally find that bands for me tend to fall into one of three different curves. On one hand, there's bands where I would rate some of their earlier stuff at like a four or a five, and then after maybe, you know, two, three albums, it starts to go down to like three and two. I've also noticed there's a few bands I listen to where it's kind of the opposite, where their older stuff you know, again, a one or a two, but then it starts to go up and it stays there. But I've also noticed there's a few bands I listen to where it has this bell curve where some of their earlier stuff, again, a one or a two, not bad, just don't listen to it often. Then they hit this plateau where I'll listen to these same few albums almost constantly. And then after a certain point, it just goes downhill again and it never really seems to recover for me. So do you notice that bands tend to fall that way for you where it falls into one of those curves? Or do you tend to see it where once you start getting into a band, they're, they pretty much stay at a consistent level for you? Oh, no, I don't think you can. And, and it's not even the fault of the artist. I mean, I don't think anybody can stay consistent. I mean, even bands who make the same record over and over, cough, cough, Motorhead, ACDC, cough, cough. Don't get me wrong, I like them both. But even then, it doesn't work, you know? Um, And there are even groups where, 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 you know, they get better, they get, they slide, they get better, they slide, they get better, they slide. A really good example of that would probably be the Rolling Stones. They had a, they had this, um, high plateau of great albums between i want to say uh beggar's banquet and goat's head soup and every one of those was great and then they they had a little bit of a lull and then uh once you got into um some girls uh emotional rescue is okay uh tattoo you undercover and even though a lot of people don't like it i liked uh Dirty Work and Steel Wheels, I thought those were good records. Um, and since then, they've kind of gotten boring again. Okay. And, I mean, that can certainly happen, too, where, for whatever reason, their quality goes up and down and up and down. And, I mean, I'm, I don't know a lot about the Rolling Stones. I, I know a few of their songs, but they're not a band that I followed passionately. But well, I, I did it, too. What's that? I mean, think about Aerosmith did it too. Between okay. uh, 
like uh, Get Your Wings, Toys in the Attic, and Rocks. And and then there are a decent amount of songs on those that I think I think you'd know. And actually, probably everybody knows. Like Sweet Emotion Walk This Way, um, Back in the Saddle was on Rocks. Dream you know, On. Rocks. Um, that was on the first one. But then, and 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 it's probably the drugs in their case, but... You know, they had three or four albums that just didn't do well. Although, I mean, they they weren't necessarily bad albums, but they weren't spectacular. But then they had that span with Permanent Vacation and Pump and Get a Grip and Nine Lives where, I mean, they were they were decent albums. Not not as good as the earlier ones, but they it was definitely a second time up up there. And I was about to mention that uh, one thing you did point out is drugs, which, I mean, let's be honest, unfortunately, that is a, a problem that some musicians do have where, you, you know, yeah, the drugs, the alcohol, the the rock and roll lifestyle does catch up to them. And, you know, maybe they do go into a little bit of a slump where, or maybe they're dealing with personal problems like I forgot which album it was, but I was reading a little bit about Iron Maiden and uh, one of their, there was one part where uh, Steve Harris was going through a divorce with his wife. That and, was the expert. Yeah, and that played a little bit into the the music as well. So that's that a very depressing and brooding album in general. So, uh, yeah, I can hear it. Yeah. And so there's a number of things that, of course, can cause the the changes of a band in both, you know, maybe not just necessarily their physical looks because that's something I usually don't care about. Um, I mean, I listen to a lot of heavy metal bands, so usually, you know, they have the long hair and stuff. And, you know, okay, sometimes it's a bit of a shock when you see that, okay, they've shaved their beard and they've cut their hair, but if they can still play good music... You know, I, I've, I've learned to see past that. I don't care what you look like. If you can rock, I'm going to throw up the devil horns and bang my head to your music, you know? Well, there are also some groups, and I, I hate to say this. I know that this, if, if some people take offense to this, I apologize. I don't mean this in, a, in an offensive way. But there are artists who, frankly, they get off the drugs and they start to suck. Okay, straight up, Dave Mustaine. He hasn't put out a good album since Symphony. Oh, no, that was Countdown to Extinction. It's been downhill since then. And his. I, the guy's losing his mind. I, I Don't get me started on Dave Mustaine, but those albums were better. I hate to say it. Do you think it was maybe in those cases, maybe it was the influence of the drugs that did help him produce those musics? those albums that you liked more or do you think there was something else going on in his life that maybe caused the decline no actually i think there was something that was that was that was that replaced all of the drugs that made his made made his stuff suck okay and i I don't want to get into that any further but okay well and that's fair i mean you know sometimes maybe it's not like a personal divorce but when if an artist does have this change in uh, you know their philosophy or their worldview that can certainly uh, play and into things. But that's with old Dave. Yeah, but I think one of the things that really makes a big difference, and this is going to be true with several of the bands that we're going to be talking about today, 
at least some of the ones I've planned, and I sent you the notes, so I'm sure there's probably a few that you want to talk about as well. But usually the lead singer is one thing that can drastically change the the style of a band. And of course there's going to be a number of reasons for that where you might they might sometimes replace the singer with someone who just sings in a totally different uh vocal range or mm-hmm. maybe they're technically they're a better singer or they're maybe they're not as good but they still have a certain appeal to their voice and of course another thing that I can I can certainly think uh would change is changes in songwriting um I mean just right off the bat uh one band that I, I definitely want to talk about uh Fate's Warning where I mean, they're one of those bands where I mentioned before how there's the curve sometimes where their early stuff really hits you and then it just takes a downhill. Mm-hmm. That's where the effect that Fate's Warning has had for me. So what the heck, let's start with them. Now, uh, Fate's Warning is a band that my sister introduced me to. And their first singer was a gentleman by the name of John Arch. And he sang for their first three albums. And then after that, he left the band, which uh, from what I believe my uh, sister told me this, because she actually uh, wrote an email once to John. And uh, part of the problem that or one of the reasons he left the band is they weren't really making as much money as he needed to, because I guess he had around the time their third album was released, he had a kid. So his financial needs were a bit different. So that's one of the things that caused him to leave the band is just they didn't have the financial success that he needed to support his family. I can corroborate that. I've heard a couple other interviews where basically what happened was he, he like he said, like, oh, I, I probably could have gone on knowing it that it, it, it did get better. He said, but I had to think about my family. I was in a position where somebody offered me a job. I guess he was like a either, carpenter, either cab making, carpenter, furniture making, I think something like that. Yeah. And he, pass it up because it was steady work that paid well and he he could stay home with his children i i guess i can't blame the guy yeah and i can relate to that because many years ago i did have a situation where i had to go from a job that i really loved and it was my dream job and i had to go to working a job that paid better and the hours were consistent but i hated it so, I mean, it sounds like in this case, I don't think it sounds like he hated doing the, uh, um, you know, the carpentry stuff. But, I mean, I understand what you're saying where sometimes your family has to come. Well, not sometimes. All the time, your family does have to come first. And that's kind of the situation where I was in because this was right after my son was born. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, you have kids and anyone who has kids they're little money pits. So yeah, you got to make sure you're uh, making enough money to, to support them. Sure. But after their first three albums, uh, they replaced John with a gentleman named Ray Alder. And the first album they released with him, uh, see their first three albums with John were Night on Brocken, Spectre Within, and Awaken the Guardian. After that, when they started with Ray, the first album they did with him was No Exit. Uh, then, what was it, like, Perfect Ironic Symmetry? Their drummer left after that album, he exited. See, and I don't, sometimes I really don't notice much of a, 
a change in style when they change uh, drummers or yeah, but you got to admit that's a little funny. They released an album called No Exit, and then he exits. Yeah, <laughs> okay, I see what you did there. But and then after, I mean, granted, No Exit was okay. There were a few songs in there that I liked, and then their next couple albums, Parallels and Perfect Symmetry. Well, actually, it's Perfect Symmetry then Parallels. Again, right. they had a couple of songs on each of those that I really did like. But then after that, they just, I don't know, they didn't do it for me anymore. And part of it was I wasn't as much of a fan as with Ray's singing as I was with John's, but also their subject matter changed entirely, where the theme behind a lot of their first three albums, they had a lot of, you know, D&D-esque uh, fantasy music, you know, where you could very easily picture these as being characters in a D&D campaign or a fantasy story. So I really enjoyed that theme that they had, but then they started to move away from that with No Exit. So what are your thoughts? Because I know you've also listened to Fate's Warning as well, and I know that you've listened to more of their late, their newer stuff than I have. No Exit was okay. I can't say anything better than that. Um, does your sister listen to this? I'm not sure. I don't think she does. So... Debbie, if you're listening, I I apologize, but Perfect Symmetry was a snooze. It was a boring, boring, boring record, except for maybe one or two songs. Parallels, though, I honestly thought Parallels is one of their best albums. I love every song on that record. Um, Inside Out, which came out afterwards, had a lot of good stuff on it, and... I really liked the three or the one after it, which was a pleasant shade of gray, which was just one song cut into 12 parts for. And, uh, and I'm going to just, yeah. And I'm going to disagree with you on pleasant shade of gray. It has a few moments, but, and I understand what they're going where, okay, they're trying to blend it all into one big long song. The reason I didn't like it is it's really hard for me to pick out individual songs on that album. Yeah, you can listen to where stuff changes, but when you look at the CD cover, it's like part one, part two, part three, part four. Hold on, hold on, hold on here. You're not supposed to do that. That's just that's just to cut it up. It's it's one song. You listen. You got to listen to the whole thing. You can't just listen to parts of it. But sometimes I beginning to end. But sometimes I don't have time to listen to an entire album track to track. Well, well, then you wait until you can. <laughs> but uh, then, I mean, Disconnected was was pretty good. I like Dis- Disconnected better than No Exit and Perfect Symmetry. And maybe even a little bit, probably around the same as like uh, 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 Inside Out. Same with X, FWX, which I thought was a good album. The last two, and I... I'm not, I got to be honest, part of that is me because I didn't really give them a chance. Um, I like listen to them, I think maybe once or twice, and I just haven't really given them a chance to go back and, and listen. So it's kind of, yeah, Yeah, because for me, see, the thing, the latest I've heard anything from was, was uh, disconnected. Because I remember my sister, she would sometimes make mixtapes for me, just to let you know how long ago this was. Um, but, there was one song I remember from that album where at the end of the song for like two minutes or something, it was just like this softer, quieter part. Then like a guitar riff, like 
And then a few seconds later. And that continued for like yeah. two minutes. I'm like, okay, once or twice was enough, but then it gets a freaking annoying. Did, did you hear all the stuff that was going on in the background? Uh, it's been so long since I've heard it. I can't remember. What about the best part at the end of that, at the end where all of a sudden it stops and you hear this voice real quiet, uh, like it's on a telephone. I think we've been disconnected and that's the end of it. It's a great song. I like it. I, yeah. I, to each their own, but I, yeah, I like it. And that's fine. I mean, I just, let's, one thing I want to make clear before we start. I mean, if Dan or I, if we, if we happen to be ripping on a band that you like, you know, that we're not saying that, you know, the band necessarily sucks. It's just, we didn't really get into it. So if you like, I mean, yeah, if you like the, uh, if you totally hate the first three Fates Warning albums, but really love everything afterwards, that's fine. You know, I'm not going to judge you for that. Um, you know, and I hope that, you know, if you're in the opposite situation I am, again, just using Fates Warning as an example, I would hope that you wouldn't judge me because I happen to like their older stuff better. But I think for me with uh, Fates, I can definitely pin it on the fact that their style changed so much where they moved away from these fantasy lyrics that were just so magical and so inspiring for me on their first three albums. Okay. So while we're on the subject of vocalists, another band that uh, they've went through three different vocalists and I admit there are things that I liked about each three of these vocalists. And th- this is Iron Maiden. So we started out with Paul Diano, and he was only there for the first couple albums. Uh, then Bruce Dickinson took over for, uh, what was it, like six or seven albums? Uh, and- well, Paul did the first two, and then Bruce did Number of the Beast, Peace of Mind, Power Slave, uh, Somewhere in Time, Seventh Son. No Prayer for the Dying, and Fear of the Dark, seven. Okay, seven. And then they had Blaze, uh, Blaze Bailey for a couple of albums, and then they went back to Bruce. And mm-hmm. this is one of those bands where I have to say, they reached a plateau for me, and that was the era from Peace of Mind to uh, Seven Son of a Seven Son. For me, that was the... You know, that was my favorite part. Again, not saying that I don't like stuff from their other eras. Um, it's just, like I said, after, I'll be honest, the last one I listened to was Brave New World. And I, it didn't, it wasn't as memorable as some of their earlier, as some of their other albums. So let's go back, though, and talk about, uh, first, Paul Deano. What are some of your thoughts from the Paul Diano years? I dig them. Yeah, and I liked it. I mean, the songs, you know, they had the short, simple, to the point songs. But still, some of their songs did have an emotional impact for me. Uh, some of the ones that stand out for me would probably be uh, Purgatory, Strange World, Remember Tomorrow, and Running Free. Keep in mind that uh, from then until now, I mean, on all those albums, Steve Harris wrote more of the lyrical content than I think most of the other people did. Yeah. So, but I, mean, I still he, like what Paul did with he, them. Yes, I I liked his style of singing. 
Um, I I was always a fan of Prowler, Phantom of the Opera, um, Murders in the Rue Morgue, Wrathchild, Purgatory, uh, Killers, uh, Women in Uniform, which was a cover, though, I, I admit. And it's actually very hard to, to, to come by. You, you're pretty much going to have to YouTube that one because they haven't put that on. They put that on CD for like a bonus disc once. And it was a single and it was a decent selling single, but it is not on any of their greatest hits packages. I have no idea why. It's a fun song. Yeah. And uh, see, I guess while I didn't necessarily, well, because I thought uh, Paul Deano, because I believe he started out more as a punk singer. Um, so, you know, he could definitely hit the high energy, but when you do look at some of the songs like Strange World and Remember Tomorrow, he still could hit that more, um, emotional side. Yeah, he does that in Killers, too. Yeah, he had, he had some, he, he showed off some decent range there. Uh, Paul Diano had some demons, and that's pretty much why he was removed from the group, which is too bad. Yeah. I think it'd be cool if they, if 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 they did like a kind of like what Halloween is doing right now with the Pumpkins United tour, where they bring all three of their singers and t- together. Okay, and and I, I do I I do admit that would be cool if they did that. Um, but then when we move for then from the first two albums to the the first Bruce Dickinson era, and again the the way the band changed. I mean, I like how they started to do more. Songs. Oh yeah, just going back to Paul Diano. I believe uh, you told me that Steve Harris, the way he put it, was that he got a bit too much into the rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah. So that was interfering I with heard. the. So yeah, that was interfering with the. Uh, uh, with the, uh, you know, the band and their performance. So, <laughs> but moving on to Bruce, uh, the Bruce era. I guess the thing I like most about this is they started to do more songs based on mythology and, you know, religion, fantasy topics. You know, you had songs like uh, Revelations, Power Slave. Uh, they had songs based on historical figures like uh, Sun and Steel based on the uh, Miyamoto Musashi. Uh, they had songs based on uh, you know, books like Stranger in a Strange Land, uh, movies to tame a land. And Dune. What's that? In Dune. Dune, yep. And so again, that's, I like how they had such a wide variety of subject matter. And of course, they had songs about swords and airplanes because, uh, you know, Bruce is a, uh, Bruce is actually a good fencer, I've heard, and he's an airplane pilot as well. Um, so, it, uh, isn't he like a history buff or like a World War II fanatic? Well, so is so is Steve Harris. I mean, Aces High is 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 about like and actually Aces High and Tail Gunner both are are very much in discussing World War II aerial dogfights. And uh, where Eagles Dare is that that gives me more of the impression yeah. of like a bombing run. Mm-hmm. But so again, not only did I find I like the subject matter more. I like how they started to make longer songs where instead of go- doing like the three, three and a half minute long songs, they would get songs that were like, uh, you know, four or five minutes or in the case of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, then you would start to get into the longer than 10 minute range. But they overdid it at the end. I, I, I'll i mention that later, I guess. But 
that can be overdone, and they unfortunately cross that line. Where they just made it songs too long? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They would, I mean, the thing is, is I, I, and maybe this is just my opinion, but I feel like your album should have, or shouldn't take up more than like an hour, and the songs shouldn't just keep droning on and on. I mean, take a look at what people consider the classic era of rock and roll, things like that. You had to fit everything on a vinyl disc. And now everybody's trying to pack on a full 80 minutes to fit on a CD or in some cases two discs or and in multiple songs are running like eight or nine minutes. You're going to lose the attention of your audience. I mean, yeah. I can see that Great blood is only like, I think, 32 minutes long. The whole thing. You can listen yeah. to that three times in a row. Yeah. And- I agree with you. Um, like one song, I mean, I like the song Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, but I think it slows down a bit too much in a couple of parts. Like they have that part where there's the, you know, the, the creaking in the background and the slower guitar part and the, you know, one after one by the star dogged moon, you know, where he starts That's reciting. That's from the actual poem. Yeah. yeah. Where he's re- I think that part does drag on a little too long, but. I mean, honestly, when you are talking about their longer songs, so personally, I feel Power Slave hits that right balance where, yeah, it's a bit of a longer song, but I, I, I feel it keeps up the flow rather nicely. Well, I, Pop, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner wasn't necessarily the problem. I liked that one. Um, I'm also a big fan of listening to the entirety of 2112, but it was later on kind of Dance of Death and Later, which was anything, you know, kind of these newer albums where it just wouldn't end. Yeah. Um, and I can... And, oh, go ahead. Like, Book of Souls, which is their, their their latest album, just bored me. Yeah, and I got that... I mean, we're getting a little head here, but, I mean, I got that impression listening to Brave New World. The only song on that album that really stood out for me was The Wicker Man. Um, Other than that... I mean, the rest of the album, yeah, it just was, it didn't have the same energy and enthusiasm that their earlier stuff did. And maybe it's just because they're getting older now and maybe they just, I don't know, for some reason they've, uh, they're starting to run out of steam, which would be, you know, which would be fine. I mean, come on, this band's been around since the seventies. They've had a respectable career and certainly, I don't think anyone would fault them if they decided they wanted to stop making music. Um, but as I said, let's go to the point, the point in between Bruce one and Bruce two. And that was the two albums that they had blaze Bailey on. And honestly, I wasn't too crazy about some of the stuff then, but looking back, I think he get, he deserves a lot more credit because I mean, maybe he wasn't as technically a proficient singer as Bruce was, but I did like his lower pitched, more grumbly, rough sound to his voice. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Sure. Because like Future Real is a good song, but uh, also another one that I really like from that era, uh, Sign of the Cross. I mean, I know it's one of those longer songs, but uh, I really do enjoy uh, Bailey's performance in that particular song. No, I like that one too. And actually, 
that one and another long one that was that was in that era was the angel and the gambler i yep. like that one too. and one of the things i liked about it was it it stuck out in that that era because a lot of it did sound so dark and brooding and kind of depressing and angel and the gambler even though it wasn't about the most uplifting subject matter um musically speaking it pulled a lot from uh 70s progressive rock and had a beat sound to it yeah the only thing i didn't like about angel and the gambler is there is a segment where it's like it just keeps going don't you believe i'm a savior don't you believe i could save your life i mean i do think that part goes on a bit too long but other than that yeah it's one of the better probably one of their uh best songs from that era and it goes beep 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 <laughs> and another song that i also liked from that era was virus uh yeah 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 and then there were um virtual 11 had a couple other songs i liked um i mean the clansman was a really good song uh, so i'd have to say uh probably future real angel and the gambler and clansman are my favorite songs from that particular mm-hmm. album some of the other ones just kind of seemed a little again like they lacked the energy that they usually have mm-hmm but musically speaking, I think the last album they had that had songs that stood out for me was Dance of Death. The song Monsegur was really good. Yeah, and, and I haven't uh, had a chance to listen to that one yet, so I don't know, maybe I'll YouTube some of their videos. But, well, let's go on to another, the next band that also went through three singers, and that was Van Halen, where, you know, first we had, of course, no, uh, Dave. That, you have that wrong. You have that wrong. They, they only had two singers. No, they had, they have David Lee Roth, then they had Sammy Hagar, then they had the awesomeness that was Gary Sharon. No, 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 no. That was a rumor. That was kind of <laughs> like the people who thought that, that, that like, that was kind of like the, the rumors going around that there were back in the, I think, 74 that, uh, Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath got into a jam together and they may have recorded it, except that proved out to be true. And uh, Gary Schroen was never in Van Halen. Um, that that's uh, that's <laughs> fake news. <laughs> you know, and I actually went to YouTube and I did look up a couple of the videos with fake news. Fake news. <laughs> I don't know. It wasn't granted. Okay, a we're not step of epic proportions. See, I didn't. The couple songs I heard, I didn't think they were that bad. But I did kind of see, I mean, what was he in? He was an extreme, right? Yeah. So I could kind of hear a little bit of the sound there. But uh, what were the, I forgot the name of the two songs. I mean, but um, again, I, they weren't as bad as I thought they were going to be. But uh, it, the problem wasn't necessarily even with Gary Sharon. I liked what I heard from extreme. I don't give me Eddie Van Halen had some problems back then. And one of the big problems that was going on with that album was the fact that Eddie basically told Mike Anthony to piss off. And Mike Anthony was there. He played on there. He played on the tour, but uh, according to people who were in the studio, he didn't play a note on that album. And he was not, he he was not 
involved in the songwriting process. And to me, Mike Anthony was a big part of their sound. Oh, I agree. I mean, I I did like. I mean, I haven't listened to their stuff yet with um, Eddie's son, but yeah, I do agree. That's one of the things that would contribute to the sound because I mean, mm-hmm. Michael Anthony, he's you know good bass, good bassist. Almost a good bassist. Uh, he, you know, he's a good bass player, but also some of the vocal stuff he did in the you know for his backing vocals, I liked that too, and. Um, so yeah, I think that it. I think it would be nice to see the band fully reunite, but I don't. I don't think that would ever happen. But uh, let's go back to the past here again. Um. So okay. So you said that Van Halen three never happened, but let's go back to the first lineup with David Lee Roth. Okay. Now I have to say I'm a. F- I am a fan of that era. I think part of it is just looking with the back with the nostalgia glasses. How mm-hmm. you know it was the early '80s. Was first starting to learn, you know, listen to, um, you know, heavy metal, hard rock, and so there was that sense of like freshness about it. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but just some of those songs, like um, you know, Jump and Panama, just made you feel good listening to it and. Also, I think the other thing that really made the band back then was their videos as well. Uh, I mean, you look at the video Hot for Teacher, mm-hmm. um, you know, that had, you know, that had a, a funny little story behind it. And uh, what are some of your thoughts of the David Lee Roth era? Part of what made it what it was is... Um, because it was the four of them writing together. And, and and keep in mind with Sammy, it was also. But David Lee Roth brought something that Sammy Hagar didn't bring to the table. And that was a coked out sense of humor. Um, and if you listen to it, yeah, it's pretty clear David Lee Roth was on a lot of cocaine. Uh, Nikki Six has stories about him. But... <laughs> Uh, a lot of his songs were peppered in with uh, with just jokes and humor and uh, which song was that? It was Unchained, Unchained, which is one of my favorite Van Halen songs. Uh, yeah, right in the middle of it, he's, you know, hey man, that suit is you. <laughs> you you gonna get some leg tonight for sure? Tell us how you do. <laughs> See and I mean things like I, that. Yeah, and I have to say, don't get me wrong, I liked some of the stuff from the Sammy Hagar era, but I thought so, I, yeah. I I thought David had a bit more charisma behind him. You know, he was definitely the rock star, whereas I think Sammy came off as a bit more of the, a musician. And again, I don't mm-hmm. mean that in a bad way. Uh, I mean, he definitely has musical talent. It's just he didn't have that. I don't know, I just felt that David Lee Roth had a bit of a larger-than-life persona, whereas Sammy didn't seem to have that much as much of an ego behind him. No frontman in history had the mix that David Lee Roth had. What made David Lee Roth was he had this over-the-top showmanship. His, you got to understand, I believe one of his relatives owned a, a very famous... Um, small club in in new york city that that 
was very influential on him and on pop music throughout the 50s and 60s called Cafe Wa. And David Lee Roth learned how to be the showman. He did, he basically took the the Robert Plant swagger and mixed it in with kind of the the uh, the Rat Pack sense of of humor. You know what I mean? Throwing jokes in between. I can't think of another band before Van Halen that allowed itself to show up in that way where they didn't take themselves very seriously. They were having fun. David Lee Roth was always joking around and making a big a big show out of things. I mean, if you look at his solo albums, there were so many cover songs of 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 old standards even things like uh California girls just gigolo and 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 things like that yeah and i that's probably one of the things i think where dave has more of that appeal where as you said he was more uh the showmanship he had more of the comedy behind him and, uh, and then of course there's that one uh there was that rumor that van halen trashed a dressing room because you know, part of their contract was that there had to be a, like a bowl of M and M's with what the brown ones picked out. Yes, and uh, you know, eventually it found out that you know it wasn't true. But David, I no, think it was true. It was true. It was straight up true. It was true. They okay. did that, and there was a good reason for it. Um, Van Halen had a lot of equipment, and they were worried that if they went into a city, and the guys who were who were there to set up didn't do their job that it could cost them their life because they were afraid of everything crashing down on them. So they snuck the Brown M and M thing in there to make sure, because they had a lot of technical, they had a lot of technical uh, specs in their rider saying, you know, you have to have this much, uh, you know, availability of pounds per square inch on the stage, things like that to make sure that everything was safe. So they put that in there in order to see that the 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 the, the venue actually read their rider because they felt if they couldn't get that, then they may not have done stuff that's really important. Okay, so it was a trick. <laughs> okay, so yeah, according to Snopes, yeah, that part about the brown M Ms, I knew that was true, but I didn't think the thing about the trash in the backstage was true. Um, no, I don't know about that, but I know that it was because they wanted to make sure that their rider was followed to the T so that they could feel safe on stage without their equipment collapsing on them or um, being overloaded and electrocuting them. Okay, yeah, because I knew that part about the stage, but I thought, like, David Lee Ross' comment was like, eh, who am I to get in the way of a good rumor? But then when we moved to the Sammy era, though, I thought that the band, I mean, I'm not as familiar with their music from then, but I think it sounded a bit more grounded where it lacked that... It didn't have as much of that, um, the same energy that David brought into the band. And again, not mm-hmm. saying that I don't like the Sammy Hagar era. It's just that Sammy, while a good musician, he wasn't the showman that Dave was. Part of it wasn't even Sammy's fault. Again, I kind of got to go with Eddie on this. Because um, if you listen to those last few Sammy Hagar solo records. They're pretty straightforward up. 
they're what he did. They're the stuff he did on in his solo albums and and his his stint with uh, Montrose. You know, they were straightforward rocking albums. Eddie kind of got this. I I feel like part of it was Eddie wanted to move away from David Lee Roth, even musically, and he started playing around with synth. Yeah, that's that, one thing I did notice that uh, um, definitely a bit more synthy in the. Uh, in the the Sammy era, which again I personally I don't mind. Mm-hmm. But no, that was I know Eddie had a lot to do with with adding more of the keyboards and downplaying the guitar around that time. Um, obviously, you know they, he came back roaring with for unlawful carnal knowledge, which really kind of brought them back into play, and I think shut up a lot of people who didn't like Sammy. You know, it, it was a great album. But, but, but I listened to it, and by the end of uh, right now, it's like, where's my Crystal Pepsi? <laughs> I was about to say that. It's like, okay, now, okay, you bastard, thanks. Now I'm thinking of, now I want to go out and buy a Crystal Pepsi. I, I, they're probably coming back in a few months. They've been doing that lately. Yep. And every time I walk in the store, if I see there's a bottle of Crystal Pepsi on the rack, I'm like, that's the first thing I think is, right now! <laughs> but anyways, so moving on to another band that both of us enjoy, and again, they've been through uh, three different singers, Halloween, where they started out with uh, Kai Hansen, who, uh, after their, was it their first two albums, or... Um, uh, depends on how you look at it. They made an EP. Yeah, and then a full album. At Walt Jericho, and most people kind of see it as one because probably for the past 20 years, they've taken those two things and smashed them together into yeah. one thing. That's true. And so he, when they moved to their next, their new singer, uh, and this is one of those situations where, again, the singer, the old singer doesn't leave, but because uh, since um, uh, he played... Uh, Kai was the, one of the guitarists. He, I guess, he wanted to focus more mm-hmm. on the guitar than the singing. So that's when they brought in Michael Kiske. Uh, so he played a few albums before they moved to um, on Andy, and I can never remember his last yeah. name. Yeah, and so we so we go back to their first cup, their first. Well, should we just say in one and a half albums? Yeah, with uh, Kai at the vocals. Again, he wasn't, I liked those albums. They had a very good, you know, powerful thrash metal type sound. But Kai wasn't much of a singer. Uh, Again, had a bit of a raspy voice. And, you Mm -hmm. know, while he could hit the high notes, he was definitely no opera singer. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I like like his singing in Gamma Ray. I I mean, he's, he's, he's matured a little bit. It still sounds like him, but... I mean, it fits for Gamma Ray. Yeah, and I haven't heard any of their stuff from Gamma Ray, so I'm... But, I mean, like I said, not saying I, I hate the stuff from, uh, you know, when he was singing. It's just, with the exception of a couple of the songs, um, How Many Tears and Ride the Sky, those are the only two songs that really stick... Oh, and Judas. Uh, those mm-hmm. are the only three songs that really stick out for me in that, that era, but oh come on, Gorgon will eat you. <laughs> I haven't listened to any of their earlier stuff in a while, but I don't know. Some of the other songs just kind of they sound too similar for me. So maybe that's why, um, like I said, Judas, Ride the Sky, and How Many Tears tend to stick out a bit for me. 
Mm-hmm. So when they move to, again, one of those rare situations where Kai's still in the band, it's just now he's going to focus on guitars. And this is where, uh, I mean, you remember how, uh, we've, how we've talked about how there's, you know, there's that bell curve where maybe some of the earlier stuff were, was okay. They hit this plateau and then like it starts going downhill again. Mm-hmm. Halloween actually hasn't reached that point for me yet. Now I haven't heard their latest album, so, um, but I have to say that since, um, they switched to having a full time vocalist, they've actually stayed one of those rare bands where they've stayed pretty constant for me. Okay. And I'd have to say that, I mean, I do like Michael, I did like Michael Kiske's vocals a lot more cleaner and, you know, very much more of a proficient singer, but, um, and, and I think that, I mean, their subject matter, they still kept kind of the same subject matter, but I felt that their songs started to get a little bit better composed and better produced at that point. If you're comparing them to Walls of Jericho, probably. If you're going to compare them to old, to newer stuff, I, oh, I, I have to mention Chameleon. Okay. Turd of a record. Touche. It had like two or three songs on it that were worth anything. And yeah, no, no, no. I'm with you in the fact that they stayed consistent, but Chameleon was definitely a low point, just like the Dark Ride was. Dark Ride didn't really fit their style. It was, again, it was a very kind of brooding record. See, Um, I I know. Oh, go ahead. But I mean, Master of the Rings is, I think that's their best album. Okay. Well, I would have to say, and I will agree with you with Chameleon. And now I think we were talking about this once and you said that, uh, cause one of the things they did in that is they started to experiment with more of a pop sound and they had a couple albums where they brought in like horns and then, uh, Windmill, which I know it's, it has a little bit of a country influence in it, and I think that's one of the songs that people either really, really like or really, really hate. It's it's not as bad as their overt religious stuff at the end of the album, but it's a stinker. Yeah, and I mean, the last song, The Longing, I actually really enjoyed that one. It was just a simple one with Michael singing and there was an acoustic guitar part in it. But those are the only two songs from that album that really stuck out for me. Now, the one before that, Pink Bubbles Go Ape, I really enjoyed that one. And for me, that was probably one of the better ones from the the Kiski era. Oh, sure. I like Pink Bubbles Go Ape, too. I mean, it was... I think it was a lot of it was because uh, Roland Gray Powell joined the band replacing Kai Hansen and he got a chance to uh, really show his songwriting ability, which would show up again in Master of the Rings and Time of the Oath and the other two he made before he got sacked. Okay, so now when we move to, you mentioned Master of the Rings and this is where they debuted their new vocalist and... Mm-hmm. Honestly, I have to say I didn't mind the changeover from Michael to Andy. 
Because that's one of those things that I think can make or break uh, a band when they changed vocalists. You know, sometimes they get a new, a band will get a new vocalist and, you know, the sometimes the old fans will warm up to the new singer, sometimes they won't. But right from mm-hmm. the start, I did like Andy and uh, the, the sound he brought to the band. Now, you mentioned um, Master of the Rings, so you thought that was probably one of their best albums from the time? No, I think it's their best album. Well, I, I will disagree with you on that. I did like Master of the Rings, don't get me wrong. But I would have to say Time of the Oath is a... I enjoyed that one a bit more. And that's from the, the Andy years, Time of the Oath is probably my favorite. Okay. And uh, now, have you had a chance to listen to much of their the stuff that came after that, or uh, yes? You... Okay. And... Um, it ha- it hits and misses. Uh, Better than Raw was a really good album. Um, I'd put it on on par with Time of the Oath. Um, I liked their their album Metal Jukebox, which was their cover. All these groups have to do covers cover album. That was theirs. Um. If you get a chance, I think the ones that were my favorite off of that one were they did a cover of Hocus Pocus and they did Locomotive Breaths, um, which was um, Jethro Tull. That was a good one, too. And they they actually did a Beatles cover, which was, was good, too. And I don't know um, if it was Gar- on this album or not, but they also did a really good version of Electric Eye. But I think that was on a Judas Priest tribute album. Yeah, that was a tribute album. I don't think that made that one. But uh, the Dark Ride had a couple of decent songs. Um, I was a fan of Mr. Torture. Yeah, that was a good song. But, but it was a dark album, and people weren't necessarily happy with it. They ended up sacking Roland and their drummer, uh, Uli Kutch, and uh, they made one called Rabbit Don't Come Easy, which I thought was probably one of their better ones since better than raw and it might have been their last one that i really really enjoyed all the way through after that they did keeper of the seven keys the legacy which the uh angry kiski fanboys were up in arms about because how dare they name that record that you know because they're the actual surviving group and that one had a couple of really good ones one that I would recommend that you check out would be they did a song called light up the universe oh that's a good one Andy Darris does a duet with uh, Candace Knight from Blackmore's Night. Yep, and it is phenomenal. Go look up the yeah. video for it on YouTube if you can. It's it's a good song and it's a good video to go with it. Um, Invisible mm-hmm. Man, that's another song that I really liked about it. Um, King for a Thousand Years. Again, those those two songs, they've got a religious tone to them. but And I guess this is one of the things I do like about Halloween yeah, some of their songs do have a, a Christian or a religious theme behind them, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. consider them a Christian band because while they might be using some of that imagery or themes, they're not hitting you over the head with it. Yeah, the only time I really thought they did that were with a couple of the tracks off a of Chameleon. Okay. Uh, the the ones after that, there was Gambling with the Devil, Seven Sinners, uh, God-given right, I think, is the latest one. God-given right. And those are all kind of... I felt like those were all the band on cruise control. 
It was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is enjoyable, but I'm not remembering anything. Yeah, and I haven't heard I haven't heard Seven Sinners, and I haven't heard um, uh, My God-Given Right yet. The latest one I've listened to was... Um, oh, the name slipped my head out of my head. Uh, not Rabbit... The Cl- one where they re-recorded stuff. Uh, no, the uh, latest one, Keeper, uh, Keeper of the Seven Keys, A Legacy. That's probably, okay. I think that's the most recent one I've heard, but... Um, yeah, and I, I do understand what you're saying where some of their, you know, they're, they are getting to that point where it's like they're not having as many memorable songs for me, but overall I still enjoy it. And, um, oh yeah, mm-hmm. another one of their albums that I really liked was, uh, um, Unarmed. That was the one where they did, it was like their 25th anniversary one where yeah. they did, um, different versions, which most of them I liked. Uh, the only one that I didn't really, the the only one I really disliked on that one was a tale that wasn't right. I liked the original version in its simplicity. I just thought that they overdid it for that version of the song. Or that version. Fair enough. I haven't heard that. Well, what do you think of the version of uh, Eagle Fly Free on the you know the acoustic version? I I I don't own that album. I can't okay. find it ever. Yeah. Uh, I actually really liked it. I bought it off of iTunes. Um, but cause, you know, Eagle Fly Free, the original version is, you know, this hard rocking, hard hitting, heavy metal masterpiece. Whereas the version on, um, on Unarmed, it's an acoustic version, slowed down a bit. It sounds like something you'd expect of some hippies to be singing around a campfire. But then again, when you consider the song's subject matter, it actually works which I was reading some reviews on the album. Some people didn't really like that sound that they did with it, but I personally enjoyed it. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd give it a chance. I mean, I think it's unfair to not even give it a chance just because, uh-oh, they used acoustic guitars. <laughs> or or they said it on uh, Metalocalypse, oh, they has the grandpa's guitar. <laughs> well, we mentioned that Halloween did a cover of a Judas Priest song, um, Electric Eye. So that's the next, that's the next band to talk about. So Judas Priest, uh, only two singers. I'm pretty sure just two singers. Uh, Rob Halford. Well, no, technically no. Uh, but they never released anything with the first one. Yeah, because I know there are some situations like that where the band maybe they had in their early years, they did have a different singer. Like I know Anthrax, another one of the bands we're going to be talking about. Um, they did, uh, you know, they did have like a singer for their first album, but then everyone forgets him. But I mean, with Judas Priest, so we had Rob. Difficult. Oh, well, go ahead. Oh, sorry, did I say that out loud. What was that? Never mind. Okay. <laughs> well, with Judas Priest, so we had Rob Halford, and then uh, Tom Ripper Owen, and then they went back. Tim. Tim Owens. Tim was it? Tim. Tim? Okay. Well, I knew a guy in high school, Tom, so Owen, maybe that's why I was getting mixed up, but Ripper. Yeah, best of us. So you're going to have to carry this part because I've only heard a couple of the songs from Jugulator, and honestly, I did like it. I felt, I mean, I'm not a super huge Judas Priest fan. I like their stuff. Um, Only got one of their albums, but uh, all in all, I think that... He, he... You got to go back further. Mm-hmm. Um, the first 
three albums. They didn't even need a change in singers. You wouldn't recognize Judas Priest on those first three albums. Um, look up uh, Judas Priest, Old Grey, which was a British uh, show with bands. And it's it's Rob Helford dressed in Freddie Freddie Mercury style chiffon, with this long flowing hair that 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 it was like longer than plants. This was like I think 1975. They looked like an old blues band in some cases. They dressed very 70s, very flashy and um, musically speaking, very very bluesy. Um, the third album, you started to hear kind of the, the blues influences go away and what, what people picture or think of when they think of Judas Priest really didn't start to, to happen until stained a class when they started to, um, to, to really perfect the, their image and the way that they played with the dueling leads. And, you know, they had a couple of things like, uh, like Defenders of the Faith Turbo and a little bit of Ram It Down may have been a little more um, commercially influenced. But th- then they came back with Painkiller, which you could hear just awesome album. angry aggression. And part of that was, and they, they've even said it, they feel like what made Painkiller was their frustration with the uh, the lawsuit, which... It, looking back on it, I still think it's ridiculous because I, I want to say that the lawyer for the plaintiff claimed that he sang the that he chose the words for the song based upon playing them backwards. You can hear this. Here's the rub. The song in question was better by you better than me. That's not a Judas Priest original. That song was originally by Spooky Tooth. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Spooky Tooth, probably the thing that they're both most well known for is their guitar player, Mick Jones, who would later show up as the, the, uh, the leader and primary force kind foreigner. <laughs> Big change here, but yeah, I, oh, I, yeah. I, I know what you mean. I mean, I did pick up a copy of, uh, Painkiller, because there's this one song on it that appeared in the uh, Brutal Legend soundtrack, One Shot at Glory, and I remember there were times I would just drive around in the car uh, in the game listening to One Shot at Glory because it was such an awesome song. I'm like, ah, screw it. I'm going to go buy the album. This is so awesome. <laughs> so yeah, I'll have to try uh, try checking out some of their other stuff, but I can see what you mean because um, I know you've been, we've talked about this in the past, and I know you get frustrated at that too, how, uh, you know, the people who think that, um, you know, Judas Priest wrote this song to make someone kill himself when, yeah, it wasn't a song that they made. And But if, if you look at the overwhelming majority of, of the music that they wrote and recorded, um, outside of some of the stuff from the first two albums where their original singer, Al Atkins, had some influence and then beyond the realms of death, uh, their drummer at the time, Les Binks co-wrote, but 
almost every song that you know of, of Judas Priests is going to have the same three names uh, attached to it as the writers, Halford, Tipton, and Downing, the two guitar players and the singer. So when Jugulator came around, for some reason, uh, Glenn and KK decided that they weren't going to give Tim the chance to write his own lyrics. So Jugulator and Demolition were primarily written by, by, by KK and Glenn. And that's part of what hurts those albums is the fact that Rob Halford is such a great lyricist. And those albums aren't very lyrically good. Okay. So. Yeah, and how many uh, albums did uh, Tim do with them anyway? Just the two. Just the two, uh, okay. Plus, plus two, uh, two live albums. Because everybody needs tons of live albums, right? Oh, no, like <clears throat> Iron Maiden. No, actually, I think uh, everyone needs what, like, Iron Maiden has what, how many greatest hits albums? Like, seven? I ain't got nothing on Black Sabbath. Anytime yeah. Sharon needs a new wig. <laughs> well, that that actually translates into, or transitions to the next band, uh, Black Sabbath, which, again, as far as I know, just two, well, actually, no, more than two singers, uh, Ozzy and then huh. Dio. No, 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 no. Did they have someone do before Ozzy? No, no, I can do this. This They had a lot of singers. Not all of them recorded with them. They had Ozzy Osbourne. Then they fired Ozzy, and they replaced him with a guy named Dave Walker. Dave Walker was in Savoy Brown and Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, that Fleetwood Mac for a little bit. This was before the famous part of Fleetwood Mac. This was right around when Peter Green was still with them. And Dave Walker lasted for, like, I want to say two months, and then Ozzy came back. They recorded Never Say Die. Then Ozzy was sacked again. Then it was Ronnie. Then after Ronnie quit, uh, they had Ian Gillen, formerly of Deep Purple. He kind of schluffed it off and decided he wasn't going to continue with them, but he didn't give them a good reason why. Suffice it to say, a year later, they discovered that he reunited and reformed Deep Purple Mark II. So after... After uh, 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 Ian, they hired a guy named Dave Donato. And uh, he really was an unknown at the time. And they did they did shots. They were going to write an album. And then Dave Donato did these interviews where he just shot off at the mouth and said some stupid stuff. So they promptly fired him. Then they did the Live Aid show with Ozzy. And they thought they were going to do this reunion with Ozzy. It fell through. So then Tony started to do a solo album. The band had broken up by this time, and he hired Glenn Hughes, who was also in Deep Purple. He was the bass player, but he did background vocals. Now, what ended up happening was his Warner Brothers forced him to call the album Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi. Yep. That's what kept Sabbath going on. It was a good album. But Glenn Hughes was a raving cokehead at the time. He'll admit this. He got sacked after about three shows because he couldn't sing the songs properly. And he was replaced by this guy from New Jersey named Ray Gillen, who, after recording the next album, said, this band is not going to survive. I quit and he formed the Badlands. Uh, that's when they brought in Tony Martin to re-record the album. Tony Martin stuck around until they brought Ronnie back, and then Ronnie quit again. And then they had... <laughs> it was because they were 
you're going to do this reunion show with Ozzy because Ozzy claimed it was his last tour at the end of No More Tears tour. Ronnie thought it was bullshit that he would, sorry, that he would have to, um, <laughs> that, that he would have to open for Ozzy Osbourne and he walked out and they needed somebody and Halford had just quit Judas Priest. So Halford did a few shows with him. So then they got, uh, Tony Martin back, right? And, they did two more with him and then everything was kind of held off. And then they did this, the big Ozzy Osbourne reunion, which lasted up until I think about 2005, 2006, nothing was going on. Uh, Tony wanted to do this, this greatest hits package uh, with the Dio stuff. And all of a sudden they, they, they reformed the Dio era, but they called it heaven and hell, but everybody referred to it as black Sabbath. And that stuck around until Tony or until Ronnie decided to leave a third time. Okay. This time you can't blame him. I love Ronnie James Dio. He passed away. He had uh, stomach cancer in 2010. Then came Ozzy one more time, and then that was the end. So, Dan, Dan, you must have a, a non-weapon proficiency, Black Sabbath lore, uh, plus 12. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> okay, that I didn't... I didn't know they had that many singers, and... um. I mean, granted, sometimes I think it can get a little fuzzy if you have someone that maybe was just like an interim singer for live tours, but, well, because, I mean, I knew, of course, Ozzy, and I knew Ronnie, I knew uh, Tony, and I knew there was that one, uh, Glenn, because I, I remember, because remember there was that pawn shop we used to go to at Main Street in Oshkosh, uh, yep. that we used to, we, okay, this is where I got my first bass guitar. Um, the guy who ran this store, we our nickname for him was Honest Bob because, well, he wasn't really honest. Um, you know, he was one of those guys. He where, was a cockpit shippy guy who used to he, who used to sell you a tape for two bucks and then ask you for a couple of bucks for tax. Exactly, and didn't it was it you or Jeff? Uh, didn't you find a copy of Seven Stars there, or was that a, a different? Was that uh, a, Jeff did? He found it on tape. He also found his tape copy of um, Garage Days re-revisited there. Um, and in the band that we had back then, the drummer, Mike, he told me that, or I think he told both of us, that this guy got ran out of Fond du Lac for selling stolen merchandise. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, I think I bought like a, a video game from him for like eight bucks and he's like, and a couple bucks for tax, couple bucks. So yeah, he, but that's where I got my first bass guitar. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. so, but yeah, I, I remember there was that point there where, um, they called it Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi and, um, I remember hearing you telling me about how, uh, that guy got kicked out because of the cocaine problem. Yeah. So since you obviously know more about Black Sabbath uh, than I do, what would you say are some of the biggest changes you've seen the band go through during that time? Um, once Tony turned into the sole, uh, sole original member of the group, you started to see his and, – and obviously Tony Iommi was very heavily influenced by um, – by the by by the blues you can hear it in those first two or three albums but when he was the only one left the a lot of the blues influence came out especially on the seventh star and a, a bit on uh eternal idol and and the thing is is he 
he had he had problems keeping people at that time. Uh, Tony Martin might have been his only re- or Tony Martin and Jeff Nichols, who played keyboards, were probably the only real stable guys until Cozy Powell showed up for a while. Um, Cozy Powell's a legendary drummer. Uh, he passed away in 98. He crashed his car. But the the albums were less, especially those ones they did with Tony Martin. Uh, the guitars were a little more, I don't want to say cleaner, but they definitely weren't as overly distorted as they were with Ozzy Osbourne and with the later stuff with Dio. Um, I think he went more melodic guitar playing wise almost uh similar to uh if i if i can do a parallel would be with um richie blackmore after after uh both dio and then his successor graham bonnet quit rainbow and then richie blackmore kind of pulled the same thing where he really wanted to be more melodic okay oh tony martin sounded more like ronnie well, there's uh, just a couple more bands I'd like to talk about before uh, we end, because uh, we've gone on actually a lot longer than I thought we would. But, uh, <laughs> but like I said, as I was saying before, Dan, he's a, he's a big music geek. So, um, I mean, as obviously he knows quite a bit about his music. So next band I'd like to talk about, this is an example where it wasn't really a change in the singer, but in the change of a band's style. And that's Therian. Um, they are a Swedish band that, well, they started out as just standard death metal. And, you know, they're one of those bands where, again, they follow that bell curve for me, where I'm not much for their first couple albums, then they started to get a little better, then they hit a plateau, and their more recent stuff just hasn't... I don't know. It just doesn't do it for me as much anymore. Because um, what Therian did is when their third and fourth album came out, uh, they started to move away from death metal and they started adding more synth and keyboards into their stuff. They started to experiment with a few of their songs with more clean vocals. But then eventually they evolved into, well, some people call it symphonic rock or opera metal, where they incorporate stringed instruments and horned instruments, uh, as well as opera singers into their, their music. Uh, the first album I heard by them, which just really made a huge impression on me, was the Vovin album, specifically the song Rise of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, mm-hmm. So I know you've listened to some theory, and I, I know you've gotten their latest album. Uh, I haven't. So what are some of your thoughts on theory and, and the way their style has changed, even though... Uh, well, I don't think the guy who originally did their, their vocals, I don't think he sings anymore. He just focuses mostly on the guitar, on, you know, guitar and writing music. One of the guys who did guest vocals on Vovin was Ralph Sheepfers. Uh, Ralph Sheepfers was first came into prominence as the lead singer of Gamma Ray, uh, Kai, Kai Hansen's band after he quit Halloween. And then Ralph Schiefer's quit that group and formed uh, Primal Fear. But he did one of their songs on Vovin. I forgot which one. And I think he also did one on Crowning of Atlanta. Wasn't it Wild, uh, Wild Hunt? Yes. Thank you. Um, 
the thing about Therion is, is I also want to try to turn this into some form of a Venn diagram. If you take all of their albums, I've noticed that there are three different um, elements to Therion, which were kind of, they were there and not there in different parts uh, for each album. And that, that is experimentalism, um, technical resources, and pomposity. So, I hate to say that. Like, those first two albums were very standard death metal, so you got to crank all those down to zero. And then once uh, Symphony Masses and uh, Lekapak, Clifoth, they started to experiment. Once they got into, like, Theli, you could hear that they were really trying to branch out, but you can also tell, like, their orchestrations were fake because they didn't have the resources, of course, to hire a real orchestra. Yep. <laughs> and don't think they had a real orchestra until Deguile. I think and, they did and, for Vovin, or at least they had a, a string okay. quartet. But Vovin, Deguile, I guess I'd put Thelly in there too. Uh, Secret of the Runes, and then maybe uh, Lemuria and Sirius B were kind of their their sweet spot there, where they had they they had the the perfect amount of experimentalism and the perfect amount of 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 resources to make those albums the way they wanted to with as little of the pomposity as possible. That started to kick in around um, Gothic Kabbalah. I felt like the moment. And I hate to blame this on someone, but I'm going to blame this on someone because I've seen this guy show up in other groups, either directly or indirectly, and they start to get obnoxiously pompous. And that's Snowy Shaw. Snowy Shaw kind of considers himself a bit of an artist. He's primarily a drummer. He first showed up in King Diamond. Um, but he started hanging out with Christopher Johnson. And then you kind of started to see their over-the-top, ridiculous, pompous uh steampunk opera thing they're doing now and it, it's just kind of ridiculous I, I hate to put it that way because i know there are people who like that and but they took it too far and they i think they lost a lot of what they were yeah cuz i agree secret of the ruins was the the top of the plateau for me um, Lemuria, Cirrus B, they were still good, but I, they didn't hit as hard as uh, Secret of the Runes did. Now, I remember reading, and uh, this was like back in like 99, 2000, there was a heavy metal magazine where they had an interview with uh, Christopher Johnson, and you know he, he, thought it was he thought it was amusing because one of the things that may have gained them some popularity, do you remember when Metallica released their S&M album? Where you know, people were like, oh, this is so brilliant. They're combining heavy metal and a symphony orchestra. And it's like, you know, of course, people then like, I, I guess Christopher was saying it's like people didn't realize that they were doing it first. Um, but he said that in an interview that his... Then whose fault is that, Christopher? <laughs> but, well, he said that his goal has always been he wants to try to make every album a little better than the last. And he never wants to make the same album twice. Because, you know, we've mentioned before, like mm -hmm. ACDC, um, you know, there was that one interview uh, Malcolm Young gave 
however many years ago, he's like, people say we've done the same uh, album 12 times. That's a lie. It's been 13. Where, you know, Therian, you know, Christopher Johnson's attitude has always been he wants to experiment. He doesn't want his uh, his albums to sound too much alike. So, But but then you get into things like Le Fleur de Mal. Yeah, which I think I think you played one or two songs for me off of that once, and it didn't really, it didn't hit for me as much as their other albums did. No, it wasn't. I didn't. I I wasn't a fan. So who knows? It, maybe you have an album that just came out though. Oh, really? What's it called? Uh, Beloved Antichrist. Okay, I'll have to try to check that out because, um, who knows? Maybe they'll start moving into a direction that'll really resonate with me again. But I remember <laughs> when I I still remember the first time um our friend Dylan. Back in college, uh, he was playing that album for me, and I remember uh, "Rise of Sodom and Gomorrah." It starts with this, you know, string piece, and then the guitar hits, and then the opera singers hit, and I'm like, "That's it! I found my new favorite band." So, if you're going to talk about um, experimenting and honking off your fans, I I don't. I realize this has gone on for a while, but I I. I I don't feel like we can end this without talking about Metallica. Yes. And now Metallica, again, I'm just a casual fan. I like some of their songs, but I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not as big of a fan as it is, as you are. Cause I think you're, you're a bigger Metallica fan than I am. And cause I know they had their earlier stuff, um, where it was more your thrash metal, uh, very mm-hmm. tend to be very fast and very aggressive. Mm-hmm. And then the Black Album was that turning point for them where they started to do that more radio-friendly sound. Uh, that's what I've heard some people say. And I could argue that you can notice the shift first in Injustice for All. Okay. Um, which I'm, I'm not saying it was more commercial, but it definitely... Felt like they took the thrash and they started to mix in, in a, an experiment with um, some of the more technical progressive uh, metal. And plus, there's the whole um, there's the whole controversy with Injustice for All with the complete lack of being able to hear the bass. Yeah. See, the thing is, I did. There's some songs I really did enjoy off of the Black Album uh, mm-hmm. of Wolf and Man. Um, enter Sandman. I have to say that back then, it's like anytime you were going to a social event where there were like teenagers of that time, usually there were three heavy metal songs that they would only play. Enter Sandman, Welcome to the Jungle, and You Shook Me All Night Long. Um, we got a faith was epic. I, I never really heard that one as often, but <laughs> I, I, I'd go for it. I, I mean, I, 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 I can see that. So, uh, again, they started to move a bit away from their thrashy sound, and and you said that it started with Injustice for All. Now, that's the point where some of the Metallica fans that I, you know, was friends with at the time and that I knew, their attitude was more like, well, it's not the Metallica we're used to, but it's not bad. It's still, you know, it's still a Metallica album. And then came, what's that? I I think they were being unfair 
let's look at the time frame of the early to mid 90s because load didn't come out until 1996 or 97 and in that time we're going to go with their closest comparison we're going to go with megadeth and megadeth released uh countdown to extinction and euthanasia and metallica okay they slowed down they kind of became a little more radio friendly and everybody gave them guff but megadeth did that too and nobody said anything about them so i'm just throwing that out there you know and see and the thing is i mean it, it may not necessarily be as bad that they did start moving to that more um that sound that would have that more widespread of peel because you could argue that when around the time of the black album that did that did make uh people it did bring in fans that may otherwise not have listened to them. Um, but yeah, when you started to get to load, that's where I, I, I think the, the metal fans started to get really divided about the group where, cause I remember our, our drummer from our band back then, Mike, um, he mentioned the first song that he heard off of that. It was what, when it sleeps. Yeah. And, or- Blood sleeps. Yeah. And it's like, he's like, well, it's a lot more mellow than I'm used to with Metallica, but he didn't hate it. And there were a mm-hmm. couple songs from that era I liked. I did like King Nothing. Um, I thought that was a pretty good song. Uh, the, I'm trying to think a couple of the other ones, but. Oh, my favorite was Ain't My Bitch. Yeah, that one was okay. I think I've only heard it a couple it's times. Because the way he's, it ain't my bitch. <laughs> Let's see, and then the and I mean reload. I think that further divided the Metallica fan base. And then this is an album that I know oh, we're going to disagree. Wait, 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 wait. Fuel was a really good song. Give me food. Give me fries. Give me salad on the side. <laughs> uh, uh, and then somewhere in there, you also got to remember Garage Eight came out, uh, which had. It was their second covers plus the first covers album they added to it, which was Garage Days and a whole bunch of other stuff they had done. Um, I stand by the statement that Metallica's version of um, whiskey in in a jar is probably my favorite. I like it better than Thin Lizzy. I like it better than any of the self Celtic type bands that 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 have played it. Um, and I know that'll honk off some people. There there are groups of people that I know that have their favorites and. And I don't mean it in a disrespectful way, but I like Metallica's considerably better. Yeah, and I did like Whiskey in the Jar. I thought they did a good version of that. Also, another song of theirs they did that I really enjoyed was their cover of Turn the Page. That was good. So was, I thought they did a really good job on their cover of Astronomy by Blue Oyster Cult. Okay, haven't um, heard that one. Oh, it's good. But, so but, after- but I feel like everybody, everybody from now on, if you're going to sing Whiskey in the Jar, and... and uh, St. Patrick's Day is coming up. I, I wish more groups, when they sang that song, would do the yeah, yeah, yeah part. Yeah, <laughs> but I would have to say that again, around the time of Load and Reload, that's where mm-hmm. the fan base started to get. Again, at least the people I knew who were Metallica fans, that's where they started to get um, divided. And then, then Saint Anger or Stanger came out. And I you think watch this. Yourself. What's that? You watch yourself. Well, I guess the thing that bothered me about this, and I remember when you played a uh, a song off me, and I'm like, you played a song off that album for me, and I was like, 
is Lars banging on a biscuit tin or a coffee can? You know what? If you, you have to get past that part, um, anybody who's like, I, I kind of like where they're going with St. Anger, but I just don't get it. Okay. I highly recommend that you watch the film, some kind of monster and you, you see this film and it, the whole album makes perfect sense. Okay. And it best stratospheres for me. I, I love the album because it, it really expressed everything that was going on. It expressed a lot of the, the turmoil going, going on through them at that time. It, it's great. You know, but then again, Dan, didn't, wasn't there this band we knew during our college years where their drummer would beat on like a garbage can and uh, old uh, Mountain Dew boxes? I can neither recall nor unrecall that particular thing. Oh, <laughs> yeah, because the, the band that Dan and I were in, um, our first guy who tried to be our drummer, it was like, he didn't, he had a drum kit, he just didn't have it on college, so when we used to try to practice in the piano room in the basement of the dorms, he would beat on like an old, um, like a garbage can and an old uh, Mountain Dew box. You do what you can. Yeah, that's true. But, that, I mean, but St. Anger was a better record than I think people give it credit for, especially the first, the first three or four, and then when you hear the lyrical content behind some of them, like, like uh, Sweet Amber and My World, I mean... You really think about the lyrics and what they're saying and what just how pissed off he is at that time. Okay. And it really starts to hit home. But then when um, Death Magnetic came out and they chose Rick Rubin to produce it and you heard a lot of it, – it kind of sounded like they took St. Anger in some ways and made it sound a little more like – production-wise, like the Black Album. And then all of a sudden, you could kind of see where they were turning a corner back. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I know their album they released after that was Death Magnetic. Is that their yeah, latest one, or have they released any other since then? Uh, Death Magnetic came out in 2008. Uh, the first song, that was Just Your Life, it was called. There's a song called Broken, Beaten, Scarred, and there's a song called All Nightmare Long, and those are uh, three songs by Metallica I actually think are some of the best ones they've ever written. After that, uh, the last one that was released was 2016. Uh, yeah, we had to wait eight years. <laughs> it was called Heart. It's called Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Okay. So you think that they've started to go back to their older sound or? Uh, no, actually, it just, it, it'll, it'll make you think of it. Um, I, I think. The only part of it that makes me think they're going back to their older sound is I'm pretty sure they're they're using the same uh, combination of equipment that they did at that point. You know, the same amps, the same stomp, uh, stomp boxes, things like that. But there's... Uh, I, I really do think everybody should go and at least check out some of the tracks on Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Um, it's a really good album. The first song, Hardwired, it, it wow. I mean, it just kind of captures the moment perfectly. 
Um, another thing they did on there was, and I just want to throw this out there, they had uh, on the three disc version, which is the one I got, they had a cover, they had a track called Ronnie Rising, which was a, off of a tribute album for Ronnie James Dio, which everything was donated to the Stand Up and Shout Cancer Fund. And they did a medley of um, Stargazer, Light in the Black, and Kill... No, not Kill the King. Was it Kill the King? No, it wasn't Kill the King. It was Star... Uh, what the hell song was that after After Stargazer? Stargazer is one of the greatest metal songs ever written. Go, go, go. Look, Rainbow Stargazer. Um, and then they also did a very interesting and kind of cool cover of Remember Tomorrow. Well, I think we've uh, gone quite a bit uh, longer than I thought we would, and I know there's oh, I know there's lots more bands that we could talk about, like uh, Anthrax is one that comes to mind, and I don't know, maybe we might have to try this again at, uh, sometime and do more song, you know, do another episode about more bands that change. Mm-hmm. So, well, I'd like to thank you for joining me tonight, Dan, to talk about right. uh, some of our bands that we've listened to and how they've changed, whether for good or for ill. So if people want to listen to you talk about other things, where can they find you? Uh, you know, I, I, I pretty much um, split my days in half between work and home. I, I prefer not to give out my address just you know safety reasons (laughs) and i can't let anyone in to talk to where i work it's a very secure building uh i suppose if you really wanted to hear anything i say you could check out radio free borderlands um best way to do that is to just just look me up on facebook or on itunes and you can hit the subscribe there um that one is a little more centered on uh D &D. um I, i don't I, I don't discriminate with the editions. I'm a fan of all of them. Uh, before you ask, no, I do not consider Pathfinder a version of the game. So, <laughs> okay. Well, I mean that with the highest amount of respect. If you play Pathfinder, you're still welcome. I'm just not going to talk about it. Okay. Well, fair enough. But, well, thanks again for joining us, everyone. And have a good evening or morning or afternoon. Whatever it is, wherever you are, and rock on! That's your red. I'm gonna do it again. Cheap commandos, rock, rock on! Okay, good night, everybody. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio. Do you do a podcast about Dungeons and Dragons, role playing games, video games, or other topics of geek interest? Would you like to cross promote your podcast on geekery in general? Then drop us a line on our Facebook page at POI Game Studio or POI Network or contact us through our website at POIGamestudio.com and we'll set something up.